Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. And he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Whereas Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with the men of this this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. God had his blessings at reading of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is, in fact, a dead letter, apart from the Spirit of God which illumines it to us. Lord, how we pray, therefore, that your Holy Spirit would be active among us this day in order that you might speak to us very truly, not by word alone, but by word and spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we consider the text of Luke eleven twenty-seven to 32, those few verses there. And the situation here is that Jesus has been demonstrating through both his words and also his actions that he indeed is the Christ. And the context, his words then that we are particularly thinking about have to do with the, the crowd's response to him. We read in verse 14, he was casting out a demon and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled. Here's a great miracle, a great sign given to them, a great 
act revealing and pointing out the fact that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. You don't have to believe him. He's actually in league with the devil. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. So here we have these two different responses voiced. And between those two different responses, we probably have the opinions of the majority of that crowd explained and articulated. Some of them think he's in league with the devil. Now Jesus dismisses this. Jesus demonstrates, of course, the fallacy of their thinking. He debunks it immediately. And then there are another group of those who reject him, only in a more subtle way, that they are demanding from him a sign, that they might see something from heaven in order that they might believe. They're saying that they had not completely rejected Jesus, they just hadn't seen enough yet. And they were suspending their judgment until they saw something more, something more spectacular, something more undeniable, something according to their own specifications and desires, and then maybe they would believe Jesus. And this is an attitude that Jesus rebukes very soundly. Is it truly necessary to see a sign from heaven? Or is it possible to receive the word of God merely as it is preached by a credible messenger? They had more than that, of course. They just had this notable miracle in front of them and they would not believe that. And they had the Son of God himself and they would not believe him. And Jesus is going to go on to point out that there have been many who have believed on much, much less than that. There are those in the history of the church, particularly in the Old Testament, who believed the word of much lesser prophets, much less credible messengers. And these believers, Jesus says, will rise up on the judgment day and condemn those people who heard Christ's word but refused to entrust themselves to it. But while he's at it, so he says he's not going to ingratiate their desire for some miracle from sign from heaven. But Jesus does say that there will be a sign. It won't be the sign that they wanted, something on their terms. No, it would be a sign that they did not expect, were not looking for, had no understanding of. But it would be the sign of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And it would be the greatest miracle ever accomplished the great and the final sign given, the greatest miracle of all time. But Jesus is not hopeful that it would do that, that group, that skeptical crowd, any good. They were not asking for a sign because they actually wanted to believe. Please don't make that mistake. Don't think, oh, the poor crowd. They would believe if only they had a sign from heaven. No, they wouldn't. They're not asking for it because they want to believe. They're looking for a reason to disbelieve. And Jesus has has no hope. Jesus gives them no chance that they're going to believe even in this greatest of miracles. He mentions it almost in passing. And not even the greatest miracle of all time would help them. But there was one other voice. There was one group who says he's in league with the devil. The other one that says, well, we're not as bad as all that, but we're not going to believe quite yet. And we're not going to believe until we have things according to just the way that we in our wicked, sinful self-will would desire it to be. Then we do have one other possibility out there. We do have one other voice speaking. It is a, a lone voice. It's not a large group. It's not from a leader, from a scribe, or from a Pharisee. It's just uh, an ordinary woman, apparently. 
And she does not blaspheme Jesus by making him out to be some ally of Satan. And she does not demean him by demanding a sign from heaven. She simply says, blessed is your mother. His gracious words and deeds which I see proceeding from you. Blessed is the one who bore you. It's the word of a simple believer, the word of faith. And Jesus affirms her in that faith. And he goes beyond it. He says, not only that, blessed are you, blessed are all those who hear the word of God. It's not just blessed is my mother. Blessed are all those who hear the word of God and believe it and keep it. And that's the word of God for you this morning. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That is our title this morning. Blessed are those who believe. And I have four points. First, many have believed on less. Second, demands for signs are ignored. Third, the greatest miracle promised. And fourth, a simple faith affirmed. Many have believed on less. Demands for signs ignored. The greatest miracle promised. And a simple faith affirmed. So first, many have believed on less. So what can Jesus say to this crowd, the majority of whom did not believe in him? And it appears sometimes as he speaks to them, he's in disbelief. He, he himself can't believe their unbelief. Not only those who thought that he was in league with the devil, that's unbelievable blasphemy. But in particular, those who were withholding their faith until they had something greater to go on than the many miracles they'd already seen and the gracious words and teaching and authority which he was demonstrating before them. Well, Jesus brings in some witnesses. He brings in some examples that had much, much less to go on and yet believed nonetheless. He says in verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Now, just a little note before we speak more about these particular witnesses, just a a note to remind us that the saints, the believers in Jesus Christ, the church, will participate in the judgment of the last day. 1 Corinthians 6.2 reminds us, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? They will not be the main judge, but they will at the very least certainly concur as a group of judges, concurring with the main judge, the chief judge, Jesus At the end, they will concur in his judgment and condemnation of the unrepentant sinners. And it appears that they will add relevant testimony at points to add weight to the case. And the point at issue here is, the the people here, so category A, they've in essence committed the unpardonable sin by thinking that Jesus is actually in league with the devil. They're, They're... they're done away with in, in that sense. And then we have category B who said, well, no, we're no, not like that. We would believe, but it, we just don't have enough to go on. We just don't have enough evidence here, and, and we want something more. So, yes, Jesus, is true that we never did believe in you, and here we are before your judgment seat, but we have an excuse. We didn't have enough to go on. And Jesus says, I'd like to call my first witness. And who's his first witness? It's the Queen of the South known in the Bible as the Queen of Sheba, who came to visit King Solomon in 1 Kings 10. She, you can read this on your own sometime, 1 Kings chapter 10, but she says in verse 6 of that chapter in the Old Testament, 
She said to the king, It is a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy, or blessed actually, blessed are your men, and happy are these servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. That's her testimony to Solomon at that time, and she will add a different kind of testimony in the end. Says on the judgment day, she will, I don't think he's kidding, by the way. I don't think he's just saying this in a, as, as a sort of uh, illustration. I think he's, he's declaring exactly what will happen. Jesus says that she will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. You see this contrast with the unbelieving crowd. She came from afar. Traveled long, journeyed through an arduous journey in order to come to to hear Solomon. They had just come from nearby. And she had come to hear Solomon. And you know, by the way, Solomon was not a perfect man. Yes, he was very wise. Yes, he spoke on many occasions as a prophet of God. But he was very flawed. And there was somebody far, far greater than Solomon there. No ordinary human messenger of God It was the Son of God himself incarnate before them. She came and she received the word of a lesser and she will condemn those who would not believe at the word of Christ. Now Jesus isn't done. That was his first witness. His second witness, collectively speaking, is the men of Nineveh. He says in verse 32, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Notice, of course, that first of all, they had actually repented at the preaching of Jonah. Whereas they had not. This crowd had not repented. They had not done that. That generation, as he speaks of it, as a whole, had not. And it was, incidentally, at the preaching of a man who hated the Ninevites. That's what we learn in the book of Jonah. There were no gracious words proceeding from his mouth. It was only the very stark and foreboding message. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And they repented at that message. From that messenger. And mainly the main point here is it was a preaching of a mere sinful man. Jonah. Not the, the Christ, the son of the living God. Just some random guy, Jonah. These men, the men of Nineveh who believed, who repented at the preaching of Jonah will rise up in the judgment and condemn those who did not believe Christ. And so what about their contention then? What what about their contention that they didn't have enough to go on and when they say, no, we we need to see a sign from you, Jesus, before we believe. Is that going to hold up in court on judgment day? Is that going to work? Because sometimes I do meet people who said, you know, it's nice that you believe. That's very nice. That's wonderful. But, you know, I'm, I'm a rational person. I'm, I'm very logical. I'm very intelligent. And I, if I don't have more to go on, then I'm just not going to have, I can't believe. Well, how is that going to hold up on Judgment Day is the question. Will that really hold up? Jesus declares that these men, the men of Nineveh, a huge, enormous amount of them, by the way, who repented, 
Along with the queen of the south, they will arise, they will testify that as whereas this crowd, this generation were disbelieving the very son of God themselves, they believed, they repented at the words of very lesser men. And they will condemn them in all of their skeptical agnostic ways. And they will be thrown out of court and condemned eternally. Well, that was our first point, that many have believed on much less. Secondly, we consider the sign of Jonah the prophet. He began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it. And this is the reality that demands for signs will be ignored, which is our second point. Jesus says this is an evil generation. How so? Well, there are many senses, I'm sure, in which we could say that generation was an evil one. All people are sinners, that's true. But the particular thing that Jesus had in mind was that it seeks after a sign. That was what was so reprehensible about this generation. What's wrong about seeking after a sign? Well, I think I should also remind us of what is said in verse 16 of our chapter. It says, others, speaking of, so some think he's in league with the devil, and then others, in verse 16, others testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. You see, they were testing him. They were not looking for reasons to believe. They were finding ways and reasons to reject him. And that's what Paul says regarding the entire unbelieving world in 1 Corinthians 1.22. For the Jews request a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those Jews just keep on asking for a sign, and no sign will be given to them. And the Greeks, they just keep on seeking after wisdom, but the wisdom of the world will not be given to them, but rather the wisdom of God, rather the irrefutable evidence of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word and his gospel. And for those for whom that is not enough for, it will not be enough no matter what. Jesus declares no sign will be given to this wicked, evil, adulterous generation who seeks after a sign. They will, he will not gratify their unbelieving hearts by becoming some sort of circus animal, performing tricks for them. And he knows, by the way, it would do them no good. What hadn't he already done? What reasonable doubt could not have already been assuaged by what he, they had seen and what they had heard of this man? He did not come entirely apart from any evidence, far from it. He continually says, look, if you don't believe me, believe the works. If you don't believe me, believe the works. These works demonstrate, these works testify to his divine reality and all those works, these miracles which not even his worst enemies could ignore or refute. He says, these things testify to me. And they say, well, okay, yes, but just something a little bit more, please. Something a little bit to your right, a little bit higher, a little bit of the... And Jesus says, no, you, you don't want to believe, do you? And he says, no sign will be given to you. So the demands for signs will not be listened to. They'll be ignored. 
But our third point is that the greatest of miracles will be foretold. In verse 29, except the sign of Jonah the prophet. There is an exception there. Except for the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Now just again, to give us a brief refresher on Jonah, that he was this reluctant prophet, that God had called him to go to this great city of Nineveh, as a tremendously huge city for the time, and to, to go preach to them. But he didn't want to go. And, and contrary to what you might think, it wasn't because he was afraid they would not listen to him. That would surely be the thing that would come to us. Well, you're sending me to this great pagan city. They're not going to listen to me. No, that's not why he was reluctant. He wasn't afraid that they would not listen to them. He was afraid that they would listen. You see, Jonah had no love whatsoever for these violent and wicked Ninevites. No love for them at all. And of course, as he then decided not to to go there, but went somewhere else instead to teach him a lesson, he was cast overboard into the sea and he was swallowed alive by a whale. And that, by the way, certainly did happen. The explanation that Jesus gives is simple. I'm not going to give you a natural explanation for it. You know why? Because Jesus says it was a sign. It was a miracle. That's how it happened. It was a miracle. That's the whole point of it. The usefulness beyond teaching Jonah a lesson was that he then, when he came, uh, when he emerged from being three days and nights in the belly of the, the whale, when he emerged from that, it was a sign to the people of Nineveh, right? It was a miracle. And he says, now Jesus doesn't explain everything that he means when he goes on to explain the miracle that's going to be given to them. But he gives this idea that in a similar way he will also be assigned to the people of this generation. The parallel text in Matthew 12 gives us a little bit more information. It says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, again, he's not going into great depth because he knows that they're not going to believe anyhow. He's just letting them know as a witness, as a testimony against them what is going to happen. And what it means is that he's going to die and be buried. He was, Jonah was alive in the belly of the whale. And I think some biologists would tell us that there is the possibility of someone remaining that way, even semi-naturally. But Jesus, of course, was dead, fully dead. And he was in the earth. He was in the tomb for these days. He would be buried, and yet he would rise again on the third day. Now, that resurrection is indeed the supreme miracle, the greatest miracle. I want us to see, among other things, that it is a well-attested miracle, so much so that other truths are established by the fact of the resurrection. In Acts 17, as Paul is preaching on Mars Hill, he says, He has appointed a day. Funny enough, he's speaking about the day again. It's this judgment day, the day in which, for instance, the queen of the south will rise and the men of Nineveh will rise this day. He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. And he has given assurance to this all by raising him from the dead, you see. That's the assurance. It's not the other way around. It's not that the resurrection goes begging for evidence 
and Lay puts its support on, on other things, it's that the resurrection itself is the central and irrefutable miracle of all times by which other truths have their support. Paul was very certain about that. He himself had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. With, he, he'd seen him. And it wasn't just him. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I delivered to you. He explains the gospel if you don't know it. He dis- I delivered to you first of all, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas as Peter, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by Five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. The five hundred brethren is not even speaking of the unbelievers who, who saw him. Five hundred brethren saw him. We're reminded, of course, in Matthew twenty seven fifty one, what else happened at the time of the resurrection just to add the greatest of weight to this greatest of miracle. The veil of the temple was torn from two and, and from top to bottom, not from bottom to top. It's not like the curtain that you have at home that if you were strong enough, you could probably rip it from bottom to top. No, it's from top to bottom. It was, it was taller, of course, in this, this room and it was as thick as a span of a man's hand. There's no ordinary curtain. And it was torn in two. And the earth quaked. And the rocks were split. There was an earthquake. And the graves were open. And what do you know? It wasn't just Jesus who was raised from the dead. And coming out of the graves after his... Oh, the graves were open. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It was the greatest miracle. It was the most well-attested miracle that could possibly be imagined. And there was no way that anyone could possibly refute it. And so Paul, all he has to do is say, look, don't just take my word for it. You can ask any of these people. They're still alive. They actually saw him. It's a fact. And his worst enemies could not erase that reality. Now it would be also Jesus final miracle to that people, that generation, the people there. If, they, if that were rejected, that would be it. Nothing more would be forthcoming to that generation. If they rejected that, it would indeed seal their fate. He's not going to give them the miracle they wanted. He is going to give them another miracle, a better one. The greatest miracle of all time. But fourthly and finally, a simple faith is affirmed. We read in verse 27. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. And here we think again about the main idea, the main point of this sermon, which is to say, Blessed are those who believe. And the woman begins by saying, Blessed is the womb that bore you. Now we usually notice the deficiency in which she said, in fact, our translations kind of lend its way that way, as if to say that she had said something that was very, very deficient, and Jesus mainly was correcting her. But that's not really the sense. Because, first of all, Mary was blessed. That's true. That's exactly what the Word of God declares. That's what Gabriel declares to her. And, by the way, I would say in, in three occasions, if you remember from Luke chapter 1, that very same thing that the woman says is declared by different people through the Spirit of God. Gabriel says it in Luke one twenty eight. 
The angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Gabriel says it. Elizabeth says it in Luke 1.42. She spoke with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And, and Mary herself declares it through the Spirit in, in verse 48. And behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. And it's true. And so this woman, when she declares Mary to be blessed, she is only declaring the plain word of God, what had already been foretold as a truth, and she is only saying what is right, adding her voice fully in accordance with the word of God. There's nothing wrong with that. And that was the opposite conclusion, of course, to those in Jesus' hometown. You remember in in Luke 4 that... He, he said to them, today the scriptures fulfilled and you're hearing. They all bore witness to them. They marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. But they said, is this not Joseph's son? Sounds amazing. It seems possible that maybe he's something special. But we know his ordinary family, so he must not be so. The woman says, I hear these gracious words. I know he's something special and so must be his mother. She may not appear to be that. But surely she is blessed. And so it was. Well, he said in verse 28, But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, more than that is probably not the very best translation of the the original words. The first word confirms what had been said, and the second transitions to what follows logically. So the, the better sense maybe is, Indeed. And therefore, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. What you say is very true. It's irrefutably true. It's, you just added your voice to some very, very credible witnesses, including my mother as well. Yes. And therefore, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He is building on what she said. Those who hear the word are blessed. And I think one thing that should be kept in mind is the enormous privilege that it is to hear the word of God. That's the problem with these people and their demands, their foolish demands for more. They were, they were so ungrateful to, to, to hearing the great privilege. They were insensible of the privilege of hearing the word of God. It is enormous privilege. Many, many have lived and died in this world and not heard the gospel. Not heard as much as you have already heard in the course of this very sermon this morning. And people say, what about those people in the darkest places of the world that have never heard the word of God? What about them? What about them? They haven't been given the privilege that you have. What about you? That's not the question. What about them? The question is, what about you? You will be held accountable for the word that you have heard. Those who hear the word of God are blessed. It's an enormous privilege to hear we're reminded of that exa- the examples of those who came from the ends of the earth to hear the, the wisdom of Solomon, and they had heard someone greater. But beyond that, it is those who keep the word who are blessed. They keep it. What does that mean to keep it? We've actually seen this word before in Luke 2. Do you remember the shepherds? That's what they were doing. They were in the same country, shepherds, living out in the fields, keeping watch, watch over their flock by night. They were keeping their flock. They had not merely come into momentary contact with some sheep as as ships passing in the night and look at the sheep and behold and keep walking and it makes no difference to them. They were keeping those sheep. Nothing was going to happen to those sheep. Those sheep were not going to 
fall through their fingers, those sheep were safe in their hands and they would be kept and guarded by the shepherd. And that's what Jesus says marks those who are blessed, those who both hear and keep the word of God. Now who is that blessing applying to more than likely to the woman herself? Either she had already received the gospel or she was very close and the Lord gave her this encouragement to close with him in faith, to, put, to rest upon him in faith because blessed are those who keep, those who obey, those who believe. Blessed are those who believe the word of God. And you know, of course, we, it is indeed a gift to believe. Matthew 16 reminds us when Peter finally gets around to saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You didn't gin this up on your own. You didn't come up with this because of your wonderful logical consistency or whatnot. The Lord God himself out of heaven has blessed you by enabling you to believe. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And so it is for all who hear the word of God and believe, you are blessed. Blessed are those who believe. And if God has blessed you to believe, it will be the source and of all blessing. Because those who believe, you see, are given eternal life. An everlasting blessedness in every dimension imaginable. Now, partially, and in eternity in its fullness. This word will be the instrument of great blessing. Well, I have just two applications for this. For those who hear the word of God, I would say to you that you ought to treasure the word. And it's sometimes a a source of great grief to me as it was to Jesus supremely and to some extent to all those who are ever messengers of the word of God, it is such a grief when those who hear do not, privilege, or do not understand the privilege that they have, do not treasure rightly the word of God. You know, Jesus, in the previous chapter, just before chapter 11, he turned to his disciples and said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. It is an enormous privilege to hear the word of God, to hear the gospel declared. And you need to understand that. Because those who do not treasure rightly what they have, sometimes what they have will be taken away from them. That's what the word of God says. And I would add to, you, add to that also something we, did, we just were recently discussing on our Christianity Explored uh, class. It, it's not just that you need to treasure, you need to understand that there are those who would seek to take it away from you. Don't let Satan take away the word of God. We were speaking of the parable of the sower. And there's these different categories of seed and in each case it gets a little bit further than the next and only the final, the fourth category of seed, actually bring the word of God brings forth fruit in the person's life and demonstrates that they are in fact a believer. But way back in category one, the very first thing, in some sense the worst thing that happens is just that Satan takes away the word. It never does you any good at all because the person didn't guard it. The person didn't keep it. It just falls on nothingness. It doesn't, even, it doesn't come to be able to reside in their hearts. Don't let Satan steal away the word. Word of God. Many distractions. Even in the, 
the, the beauty of this spring day and the light and the, the warmth, there are distractions. Brothers and sisters, the word of God is a precious gift. It has been given to you, and I urge you to treasure it, to keep it, to, to, to not let anybody take it away from you. And likewise, I'd say don't let it fall to the ground. God warns us. He says, I'm not going to leave you, let you be guiltless if you let my words fall to the ground. When it, when it speaks of somebody who's doing right, it says, He let none of the words of God fall to the ground. You know, if you don't treasure something, you don't care, you do let it fall to the ground. Because who cares? We ought to treasure this word and let none of it fall to the ground. Well, secondly, besides treasuring the word, I would say that we should embrace the word. Again, under the whole idea that we, blessed are those who believe. And I put it this way, we should embrace the word. Because that was the problem with these people. They were standing at arm's length to the word. There's the word, and they're reserving judgment for another day under better circumstances of their own uh, dictation and device, and they were not willing to embrace the word. Well, let me say something about faith, that it is not by sight. It's not by sight. If you think it is by sight, then you will demand a sign from heaven, and no sign will be given to you. But if you understand that faith is actually simply receiving that which you do not see, on the basis of the word of God, putting your trust in the promises of God, then it may well be that you will be blessed in your faith. That God will grant to you to believe and you will be saved. And let me say something about the gospel which we believe. It's not about appearances. It's not about images. Again, people say, you know, don't you care about evangelism? If so, you should get yourself a big screen and you should put some images on. For what? I don't know. It, it doesn't, I'm not sure what images we're going to put there. I'm sure we'd find one of you would volunteer to be the, the new PowerPoint ministry person. And we'd have a wonderful multimedia presentation. And it'd be, I'm sure we'd have Easter eggs and an Easter bunny and all the rest of it this morning. You know what it'd do for you? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because the Word of God, there's no pictures in this Bible. Because the Word of God does not come to us through images. In fact, actually, the second commandment says that we should never make images of God, any one of the the three persons of the Godhead, because God in his wisdom decided that the way you were going to learn about the invisible God was through words and not images. And if miracles were necessary for us to believe, God would give them to us, but it's not. The queen of the south will come and rise up in judgment against people who think that way. What is given to you is the word. It is a word that comes to us from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is a promise that has been spoken, a promise that is conveyed to you apart from appearances and miracles and images. This word comes to you. You know, John 1.11 says, He came to his own, speaking of that evil generation that didn't believe, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who what? Just to explain what it means, that those who received him, to those who believe in his name. They will be saved. They will become the children of God. They will be blessed. In Acts 16.30, Philippian jailer asked the question that you should be asking. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That's the blessing for those who believe. 
What do you have to do? You have to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You want a sign? You already have the greatest miracle that could possibly be conceived. You have someone, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who came to give his life a ransom for many. He died on the cross and he was verified dead by the most brutal and definite means by those Roman soldiers. He was buried. He was put in the grave. Indeed, the people, the only, his own people didn't come because they were expecting to see him alive. They came with an embalming kit because they expected to see him dead. But then on the third day, he rose again, came to life, not partially, not gradually, completely and totally the most irrefutable, perfect miracle that could be. And what is given to you at this point is to embrace the word of God that you hear. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we are thankful that you and your wisdom have given us a word, a word of God that may be preached in every place, is already confirmed Indeed, by every evidence that could be imagined, greater miracles than these people had in mind with mere fireworks in the sky. But Lord, you have given us the supreme miracle, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which indeed we remember Lord's day by Lord's day and proclaim the Lord's death. Indeed, we ourselves are witnesses that he is risen. And Lord, you have given us this word that is so well attested in order that it might do us good, in order that it might be a source of blessing as we believe it, we receive it, and that we embrace it. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not be like that wicked and adulterous and evil generation that sought after a sign in their unbelief. But rather, Lord, we would be those who treasure up the word of God, knowing the great, enormous privilege it is to receive it from you, and those who embrace it in faith. We pray, Lord, that these things would be true of all here present, all who hear this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.